As we continue our series, The Next Million, the series airs every Tuesday and Thursday. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Now, our population presently is around 2.8 million people and is expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. How do we accommodate uh, these new residents and how do we work, live and play in a region with a million more people? Now, recently, recently we looked at our shortage of industrial land in Vancouver. We also looked at how we should govern the region with a million more people. And what does food security look like in the context of region adding more people yet wants to protect it protect its uh, agricultural land. Uh, Last week, we also looked at policing in Metro Vancouver in 2050. On Thursday, we'll be looking at energy needs of our city mid-century. Now, today, we wanted to discuss First Nations communities and their role in a region of nearly 4 million people. One only has to listen to news and you realize from Squamish to Kitimat, from Tawasan to Williams Lake, First Nations are making strides to build capacity for their communities and, uh, and become key players in the provincial economy. That's definitely true here in Metro Vancouver. Now, in 2022, Post Media analyzed eight major projects involving the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, both individually and together under the MST Development Corporation joint venture. Uh, and their uh, plans cover property in Vancouver, Burnaby, and the North Shore, which are promising uh, just over 25 thousand homes and those are three first nations remember metro vancouver residents live on the shared territory territories of many indigenous people including 10 first nations kwatlin the, the Coquitlam, uh, matsqui musqueam kakite semiamu squamish tawasan and slaywatooth nations all these nations have diverse and distinct histories languages and cultures joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, metro vancouver in 2050 in our series the next million we're joined now by hail salem who's the council chair for the squamish first Nation. Hail Salem, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a bit of a long intro, but I just wanted to provide a bit of context in regards to our region here uh, and where we're headed. Uh, I want you to just look into the crystal ball just a little bit. I think it's 2020. Where do you envision the Squamish First Nations in regards to development, in regards to uh, capacity within your own community? Give me a sense of what you dream dream of what 2050 looks like. 2050 is one of those generational goals that we're also focusing on, even in the Squamish Nation. You know, we're developing a generational plan and thinking about these things right now. Mm-hmm. It, I think that what we would see is that uh, a number of the lands that we've held on to for over 100 years uh, will have been developed. Um, the, the North Shore will probably go up in size by about 30 to 40 percent from the development just on Squamish Nation lands. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you'll see through the partnerships that we've created with both municipal governments and federal and provincial governments that an alignment with the land use planning decisions that we make on our lands with the major infrastructure like on transportation, whether it's rapid transit or new bridges, things like that. So I think that there'll be a lot of collaboration um, over the next uh, few decades, but I think we'll see the nation succeeding at demonstrating that we are capable of delivering a lot of housing both on our privately owned lands and on our federally owned lands and building these really nice, wonderful, complete communities that people want to live in and have lived in for a number of years. And I think it'll be a huge success story, not just for Vancouver, I think for Canada, Mm -hmm. that given the history of Canada and the challenges that have happened between Indigenous peoples and and the government is, uh, you know, pointing to a real success where this idea of Indigenous people are going to use our land to help address the housing shortage for the general public and welcome people to live 
uh, amongst our people and our communities and, and use that as a way to generate economic prosperity for our communities. So that's your vision for 2050. What's standing in the way of that right now in your mind? What are some of the obstacles or challenges? Well, I would say the biggest one right now is is the economic outlook of Canada. You know, whether it's a recession or whether it's just the volatility right now that's happening, the the, the interest rate, uh, the amount of public debt that has climbed over the recent years, uh, these are all contributing factors. And so I'll just use an example. Um, when we look at the 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 world of capital markets, whether it's Canada or international, and the way that things are shifting in that regard. Um, access to financing, especially for real estate projects, is is becoming much, much more difficult for every developer, I think, uh, operating in Vancouver or in most of our cities. Um, there's a certain threshold that I think lenders and the private markets are willing to to bear. And, and uh, as interest rates rise and as mortgages become more expensive, there's just going to there's a little bit of this sort of um, wait and see approach, which is making it more difficult to access capital. So I think that's going to be a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the labor shortage and labor needs to be able to deliver on some of these things is going to be huge. You know, when we look at some of the projects that we're doing on our lands right now that are underway, like we have three cranes up in Kitsilano right now. We're going to have another three up um, by summer. Um, we have other projects like at Jericho on the west side or Heather Street Development uh, near Oak Ridge. Um, there's a point where we have so many projects underway that when we start looking at prime or subcontractors and there's a small pool of them that actually can do the job um, or available at a certain time, um, there's certain critical pathways to getting to a building actually opening up. And I think the labor issues and the challenges there are going to be huge. I think the aging population is a contributor to that in terms of uh, the labor pool we have here in Canada, which is why I think the feds have made a, a pretty drastic change in immigration policy. Um, but then I think more so than that is um, there's there's a lot of, of really, I think, well-meaning intention going on into the work of reconciliation and supporting First Nations. And I think it's just making sure that uh, those intentions are followed through on and that we start to see, I think, tangible results. There's a lot of um, activities that can feel, are these really doing anything? Is this making a difference? And I think it's fair to have criticism of some of that, but... Uh, it's really making sure that we are following through on the things that need to be done and getting to those outcomes and, and delivering results. You have, you've talked a lot of these macro issues, whether it's the economy, labor challenges. Do you have capacity in your own community to deal with this? I mean, you still need the planners, you still need uh, the CEOs, you still need the communications mm-hmm. experts. You need a little of all of it, right, at all times. It's a challenge for anybody. Uh, are you building that capacity within your community? You see that? That is a huge challenge um, and opportunity. I mean, we're fortunate as a Squamish nation, and I've always um, talked about this more recently, is that you know Squamish nation has about 4,100 uh, enrolled citizens in our nation. We're also an amalgamated nation. So we used to be 16 separate communities and came together and, and amalgamated into one. So when we look at the talent pool that we can draw upon, we're actually very fortunate, I think, compared to other First Nations, where if you have 4,000 people in your community that you can train and and, and uh, mentor or put into a, a, a pathway, that's a lot of people to draw on compared to if you're a community of 500 or 1,400. So we have some strengths there. There are challenges. You know, we do not have enough uh, urban planners. We do not have enough architects. We do not have enough uh, accountants, lawyers, financial um uh, advisors, there's a whole suite of professions, and then even things like teachers, doctors, nurses, etc. So those are all, I think, real challenges where I think we've been very um, smart. As about uh, four years ago, 
the Squamish Nation started making a massive investment into post-secondary education for our people. So we fund every single Squamish person that wants to go to post-sec, we will fund them. We only receive a certain amount of funding from the federal government for that program. But about four years ago, we said we're going to start spending own source revenue, so revenue that we generate from our leases and our businesses and other uh, non-government related revenue. And we're going to start spending a portion of that towards post-secondary education because we really felt that that investment will pay off over you know seven, eight years when those people start to get their degrees uh, advance in their careers and they can come back and work for a community. And we're seeing it now, you know, the CEO of our economic development company uh, is a First Nations woman who's from the Squamish Nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, form, uh, she was an accountant uh, as a senior partner in a major accounting firm, now leads one of the largest economic development companies in Canada. We have a number of senior staff that are occupying roles because they've been able to be supported in their educational uh, careers. Um, And so we're seeing it start to pay off. And I think that continued investment is going to continue to pay off. Just joining us, we're speaking to Hill Salem. He's the council chair for the Squamish First Nations, part of our Next Million series as we look at Metro Vancouver with another million residents by 2050. What does that all mean? We're talking about uh, First Nations development, lots of development occurring not only uh, between the Musqueam and the Tooth and the uh, Squamish First Nations, but uh, there's 10 First Nations in, of course, the Metro Vancouver area, and all of them uh, will be looking at different types of development. Uh, now, Salem, let's touch on uh, Sinoc just for a second, and you've been on the show before talking about that particular development. Squamish is also involved with the Jericho lands as well, and that's a longer-term conversation. Uh, but one of the things I sometimes perceive, and I guess even indirectly see, I saw it on social media not too long ago, I think you were responding to someone, there's this notion that the Squamish First Nation don't have the capacity, or at the very least, they're not doing the consultation or the you know, anytime a project has to be approved, there's a tremendous amount of research that has to go in in regards to its feasibility, uh, its marketing, all of that. They felt that the work at a First Nations level isn't being done. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have the capacity uh, that, say, a traditional city city council or city hall would. Uh, and you push back on that a little bit. Do you, do you still think uh, Squamish First Nation, many First Nations communities, when in regards to development of these large residential communities, are still dealing with some of uh, that attitude? Yes, I would say that there still, you know, remains a, a, an attitude by some out there that um, I think undervalues or underestimates the capacity or the capabilities of First Nations people and governments or organizations. But one of the things that's really interesting about Sanok, and, and I know that some of this is just, these aren't the headline details that end up out in the public realm, but there's some just some facts that I think are really interesting. So one of them is, Uh, The Squamish Nation advocated for and then utilized federal and provincial legislation to bring a number of of provincial regulations in place on our reserve lands. So the Residential Tenancy Act, we worked with the province and the feds that the Residential Tenancy Act will apply on our reserve. We're working through um, tying into the BC uh, building code so that it will be certified under their codes. Uh, It will already be certified under the City of Vancouver's building codes, but as people might not know is that city of Vancouver doesn't have to follow a BC building code. So we're actually doing both. And then on the business side, um, we didn't decide to do this on our own. We did a competitive bid process to the development community to pick a development partner because we recognized that we didn't have both the project management experience or the pre-development experience um, to actually carry out a project of this scale. And then through that process, they actually brought in a third partner, which is OP Trust, uh, one of the largest pension funds in Canada, 
as a as a twenty percent uh, owner of of the overall development. So they and they do a significant amount of real estate de- uh, uh, investment, um, particularly in rental. So when we look at uh, the question is really around risk. What's the risk that this is not going to work or it's going to cause problems or it's going to mm-hmm. uh, fold or that kind of stuff? And what we were able to do is throughout the process, find multiple ways where the nation opted into processes to actually make it less risky. Because for our perspective, we want to be able to generate long-term cash flow, but we also want to be able to stand by the quality of the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um- when I look across this province, and I always look try to look beyond uh, Metro Vancouver coming from the interior myself, I look at wineries, resorts, LNG, housing we're talking about here, cannabis, there's all different types of businesses First Nations communities are about. Uh, I'm very curious, uh, and you're going to be involved in for a very long time, what is the internal conversation when, when uh, uh, non-First Nations aren't there <laughs> in regards to are you preserving your culture? Mm-hmm. Are are we are we getting away from our core ethos and philosophy as First Nations people? I'm sure that conversation goes on. That things are changing so quickly and so rapidly. Do we have a sense of who we are? A sense of self? Does that conversation go on? I would say, yeah. the The, the question is really about identity mm-hmm. uh, and and who are we and what are our values? What are our customs or practices? How do we relate to each other? Are we in effect, you know, becoming more uh, assimilated into the mainstream society and how much do we practice things that we hold uh, important to our, our culture and our community. And I think it's a very uh, salient conversation happens in lots of First Nations communities. But we also have some data. You know, we just did a census in my community where the top priority uh, when uh, 40% of my people were polled, top priority was um, they want to learn their culture mm. and they want access to learn about their language. Wow. Yeah. You know, other priorities were things like healthcare and housing, but amongst the, the things that they want to see more of, it was language and culture. And when we look at the economic development that we're doing, there's a there's a vision there to generate revenue because we don't want to rely on the government to pay for everything. Generate revenue and raise incomes of our community and use the revenue that we generate collectively from things like Sanok to invest in things that are going to raise the individual household income like education, career placement, et cetera. So uh, our people will be able to hunt on the land and fish in the rivers and speak their language and practice ceremony and go to Longhouse. They're much more likely to be able to do those things if they have a, a meaningful income, they have meaningful work, and they have access and supports um, to all the amenities that they would need for that. We can we can do that through developing our lands to pay for those things, and so I think that it's not um, they're not opposed to each other. They're um, in some ways a means to an end, but at the same time, when we're doing the business we're doing or the type of business we get involved in, we want to make sure that that is also living our values, whether it's environmental protection, support for our workers, things like that. Thank you for your time. Today. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you.